The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. And sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people. Welcome to The Echo Chamber. This is Arun Sudhaman from The Homes Report, and I'm joined this week in the studio by someone I've known for a very long time. It is Greg Paul, who is the principal of R3. Greg, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thank you, Arun. It's been a long time coming. I'm very delighted to be here. So we're in Hong Kong, um, but you're actually based in New York now. Yeah, I'm spending about 180 days a year in New York. That's a very... That's a very exact number. There's no tax. Uh, I mean, yeah, it should be 183 to get the tax. So what a coincidence. But um, and then a lot of time uh, in other places as well. But uh, mm. yeah, it's been a it's been a busy few years for but us. You've been in Asia for ages. Um, yep. for, for I think 20 years more. Yeah, sure. Tell um, if you don't mind if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what R3 does because I've always felt that you, your partner um, at R3 Shu Fan and and indeed businesses like yours, have incredible insight into the whole client agency dynamic. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey for us. I think when we started, we were very much the, the, the pitch consultant, you know, mm-hmm. where the, we're famous for running pitches and helping marketers find agencies. I think we've kind of changed our model over the last uh, five or six years, and, I, you know, we see ourselves much more as the McKinsey of marketing. Mm. We just think that the CEO's got McKinsey, Bain, and BCG, and the CFO's got KPMG, Ernst & Young, and PwC, who does the poor CMO call for independent advice? There really mm. isn't anyone fulfilling that role. So, you know, we're doing as much time inside companies now as outside, helping mm. them look at how e-commerce, digital transformation, you know, the, the role of structure globally and how they need to, to adjust to a, to a new world. That sort of stuff keeps us awake at night and keeps mm. CMOs awake at night. Yeah, so it's not just agency-focused. Uh, it must give you a wealth of information, though, in terms of the way – the marketing landscape is changing. Yeah, we're very lucky in our place, uh, a bit like yourselves as an independent advisor. We get to see things close up and we see mm. some of the changes. You know, it's what always impresses us is talent. When you find great people working together, they can achieve amazing things. Mm. So let's start off then. Um, if I can ask you about uh, the holding groups, because, of course, there's been a lot of coverage uh, of the pressures that holding groups are under particularly in the last few months, I think, things like, of course, starting with, say, digital ad fraud, you know, investigations we've seen in America and perhaps in other countries, brand safety concerns affecting digital platforms but also affecting the holding groups. Uh, And then, of course, we see the results that have been coming out over the last two quarters, which suggests this is the worst year for holding groups since 2009. We see questions about succession for people like Martin Sorrell. how do you characterize the progress of holding groups? And do you think perhaps their best days are behind them? Yeah, it's been a very tough period for them. And there's a lot of factors at large here. And some of them are being well publicized, some less publicized. I mean, I think the well publicized ones are the, the CPG companies mm-hmm. struggling with their businesses themselves. They're looking um, at different models. One thing that hasn't been so well publicized is in-housing. You know, Unilever set up uh, 28 agencies around the world internally now. In- Intel, just one in-house agency of the year. They've got 200 people and they're making 80% of all of Intel's ads are now made internally. Hmm. Um, so I think in-housing is actually changing the model quite a lot. 
And then the, the other part of that is the role of people like Facebook and Google as direct um, resources. You know, they're, they're bringing marketing teams to, to, to uh, Mountain View and, uh, and, and Silicon Valley, and, and marketing teams are drinking the Kool-Aid and thinking, well, maybe I can work direct with these guys. Maybe mm-hmm. I don't need to go through my agencies to do a lot of this type of work. So it's changing the nature of the way um, businesses get done. And then I think other factors are things like consulting firms. I personally think that, you know, this rumor that consulting firms are eating uh, Madison Avenue's lunch, they're actually eating at a different restaurant and one with <laughs> a more quite a few more one. Michelin stars, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately. Um, but uh, and I, th- I think they're eating the lunch that the, the holding groups would love to eat, but yeah. unfortunately haven't had much of a bite of that in, in past yeah. history. So Interesting. We'll talk about management consultancies sure. in a bit. Just coming back to your comments on, on holding groups, I think the, the threat from digital platforms has been really clear but in-housing that's an interesting one why do you think um big companies are bringing that kind of work in-house and not going to an agency anymore so what we've seen is sort of uh, three tiers of marketing now so uh, marketing communications the tier one is always going to go to the widen kennedys and mm-hmm. bbh's and ogilvy's top agencies around the world pr as well tier two is going to be your you know we call them the mcas my cousin's agency but hopefully in a little more sophisticated. So it could be the Hogarth of this world, mm. but more often than not, it's it's the local uh, third-party provider that may not be part of a holding group. Mm-hmm. So marketers are losing, uh, are pushing more revenue there away from the holding groups. Mm-hmm. And then the third level is in-house. Uh, you know, Apple have got a thousand people in-house making advertising. Uh, they hired the head of Gray's uh, global creative uh, team to come in and do that. So I think you're going to see those three tiers. I think historically holding groups would have had. 80% of that bucket. Now they've probably got 50%, and I don't see that increasing. Mm. Um, what do you think holding companies have done wrong? Because there's been a lot of talk about how the model hasn't really evolved in a, in a, in a long time. Uh, and then, there's, of course, there's, there's pressure on their margins and so on. Are they just not built for this kind of the, the sort of digital era we're in now? Yeah, I mean, again, I know we're going to get on this topic in a minute, but if, mm. you, if you take a look at Accenture, they've got 420,000 people under one brand, Accenture. They yeah. don't have individual profit centers and loss centers and, and all that stuff. They're much more nimble and flexible, and they can bring resources onto an account anytime they want to. Mm-hmm. Holding groups don't have that structure. They decided that they were best to follow a, a more of a niche position mm. um, with individual profit centers, and I don't think that's helped them um, you know, horizontality as much as they would like to have done. Yeah, I mean, There are some exceptions, of course, but generally it's been a challenge to get them to work together. So when you hear someone like Mark Pritchard saying, you know, your your complexity shouldn't be our problem, is that kind of resonant of what a lot of clients think, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. It's a big challenge to, to get um, one holding group together, let alone when you've got to work across two or three. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're increasingly encouraging marketers to go best of breed. Just find the best creative, best PR, best media agency you can. If they happen to be in the same holding group, hooray. But at the end of the day, you really want to find the best in class for you. So, mm. um, you know, that, that, that complexity is just getting added to and added to. One of the things we see in the public relations industry is that mid-sized firms and independent agencies have performed much better than publicly held ones. Do you see that broadly across the whole spectrum? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is um, some of the most risk-averse companies in the world are large PR and ad agencies because mm. they're not encouraged to be um, risky. They've got a quarterly uh, P&L uh, responsibility. Um, if you mm-hmm. look at the, the boutique PR firms, the boutique ad firms like a Wyden Kennedy or you know some of these other boutique PR mm-hmm. firms, they have a lot more flexibility. They're owner-operated. 
um, you know, the owner's more entrepreneurial and they'll take more risks with marketers and clients and, you know, clients respond to that. Mm. And less margin pressure as well. I yeah, think. and they can, they can take a hit for six months and come yeah. back, you know, later in the year or even the next year. Um, you know, that's, that's how the industry is built, by the way. It wasn't built through public companies. It was built through successful private entities. Yeah. The best law firms in the world are private. Uh, you know, the best accounting firms in the world are mostly private. Yeah. So, so what next? Do you, do you expect greater consolidation perhaps uh, within holding groups? Yeah, Accenture's going to buy something very large. Oh, uh, even on that They've level. got the cash to do that. <clears throat> so um, so right. that's definitely going to happen. I think someone like an MDC, which is already 30% of my Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. is kind of ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, let's see. I mean, I think the, the, the challenge is the holding companies have, have lost so much stock value in the last year or two that they've become very – attractive propositions now to private equity to large consulting firms to a mm. combination of different places actually so f- with the management consultancies do you think that's a good move for them though to buy a big holding group uh <laughs> time will tell i think it's going to be a challenge for them yeah. um but they do need to fast track that competency they can't grow that internally so they're right. going to have to find it from somewhere um, they've been picking off uh, some of the best agencies. I think Accenture and IBM are yep. kind of leading the way there. Um, but yeah, they're going to they're, they're, they're going to want to get into that space and uh, and do that work. And one of the questions I hear often is why are management consultancies buying so many agencies? Because they're in a they seem to be in a good place in a good business. They provide strategic advice, and then they leave before the implementation huh. happens. You know, that seems to be uh, the, the right way around of doing things. Why do they want to get into this kind of lower margin yeah. execution work? You've got to differentiate between management consultancies and, and BPO cons- right. consultancies. So, okay. you know, McKinsey, Bain and BCG, they don't, definitely do not want to start making advertising anytime mm. soon. But people like Accenture, they're under margin pressure as well as, mm. a, as a BPO process. They're looking to get into more of the C-suites. They're already mm. in the CIO and the CFO and the chief sales guys, so they think, you know, why don't we move into the CMO as well? Because the, they're seeing the role of the CMO changing as well, and they want to get access to that. Mm. And what about these, you know, you often see the, the ECD of the day saying, well, Accenture will never understand creativity like I do. Yeah, <laughs> it's a common it's a common uh, comment, but the truth is they're buying some of the best agency assets. Mm. So they definitely didn't understand it three or four years ago, but that's changing quite a lot. What we're seeing in the U.S. now is kind of interesting. You know, the, the Accenture's taking their top 10 or 20 clients, which are $200, 300000000 million relationships, and they're doing spec creative for them. Right. They're turning up to clients and saying, look what we just did, because they can. They've already got a $300 million relationship. Hmm. No, no harm in, uh, in stretching that and seeing if they can expand it. That's pretty frightening for, um, for, for big ad agencies. Do you think they are alive to the, to the threat they're facing? Uh, I think some are better than others. Um, mm. I think it's really a challenge for them to, you know, unfortunately they've they've brought these ad agencies from the 20th century forward. Um, so when you look at someone like an RGA, which is coming from the ground up in digital, mm-hmm. it's a totally different relationship to um, to what you might see with, an, with a classic ad agency. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we did a big pitch last year in, in the U.S. For, or globally for New Balance sports shoes, and we looked at all of the top creative suspects, and they all pitched – and in the end, VML1, which is a standalone digital agency inside WPP, I think it's the first time a, a digital agency has won a global creative assignment or global creative AOR mm. because they know about customer journey. They know about analytics. They know about tracking you know, um, 
sales results. So, you know, they have the skills that a legacy creative agency just doesn't have. Mm. And that kind of transformation is is hard. You're almost better yeah. off starting again. It's going to be a challenge. I think you're going to see a lot more mergers of, you know, you already see WPP putting different pieces mm-hmm. together. I think that's just going to continue with all of the holding groups. Mm. Okay. So in terms of what you're seeing um, in-house from clients, what would you see are the biggest biggest challenges they're facing in terms of, of their marketing communications? Uh, in terms of in-house, I think it's still going to be talent. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's easy, to, it's easy to, to hire an agency to make margarine ads. It's much harder to find 20 people to sit in your office and do that. Mm. So it's, it's never going to be easy to get the top talent that you need uh, doing in-house uh, marketing communications. It's mm. going to be a balance. Um, talent's one, and then I think just, you know, technology um, mm. is changing so quickly. You know, the, the, you know, if two or three years ago you were doing this, you'd set up a whole Snapchat team that may not be relevant today the way it was two or three years ago. So I think the, the technology is moving so quickly, you know, you're going to have to keep very nimble to keep that flexibility. Mm. And, I mean, are there any companies that you think are, are handling these shifts well? I mean, I think Apple's doing an amazing job. Mm. Um, you know, we work very closely with Samsung. I mm. think they're doing an incredible job. Um, they're, they're not going in-house. They're actually leveraging agencies to help them. Um, but they're really, they've really changed their marketing teams in-house and brought in talent from Coca-Cola and P&G and L'Oreal. And, uh, you know, they're really changing the way that they go about marketing. Mm. And how are um, marketing budgets looking to you? Because there's a lot of macroeconomic caution it seems uh, and we know about cpg companies of yeah. course but in general how, how do you see budgets holding up yeah i think it depends a little bit by sector mm-hmm. some sectors are doing better than others i think the question is really uh what's a marketing budget so uh, the role of e-commerce is changing the nature of that i think you're going to see the fastest growing company in my opinion is going to be amazon's advertising uh, investment right now they got a last year they got a billion dollars of investment um from uh, through the site this year it's four billion mm. you know next year it could be 15 billion you know the, the scale and the exponential growth of that um, capability is going to be incredible hmm. on that note let's talk a little bit about China uh, mm. because that's a market you know well uh, obviously it's kind of leading the way in terms of uh, e-commerce mobile e-commerce development yeah. um, do you see that being exported globally through some of its platforms yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Tencent and Alibaba have invested strategically in a lot of s- companies in the U.S. So mm-hmm. there's, there's no shortage of, of uh, commitment to becoming a global brand. I just don't think they're going to necessarily export the technology directly. Mm-hmm. They're going to just take the money and run yeah. uh, and use that through strategic investments. And then they're going to learn more and, and foster that. So I think, um, you know, every global marketer needs to look at China uh, and the e-commerce ecosystem there because there's so much to learn. Yeah. The speed and efficiency and the, the way it works, it's, it's just a, a breath to behold. I, I saw today that Facebook has added a payments button, I think in Messenger, um, although it doesn't work. Huh. But um, it's there, which, you know, is, is a new thing and, and not one uh, certainly I wasn't expecting. I, I met the head of mes- Messenger last year and he said there were no plans. But um, Well, yeah, I mean, everyone's looking for a more frictionless relationship. Mm. And Amazon's been leading the way with that uh, outside of China and Alibaba's been leading that inside of China. So, um, you know, what they're doing with e-commerce now, I mean, Adidas is searched for more on Alibaba than it is on Baidu. So... Mm-hmm. Marketers in China are now investing more and more through through them as a as an advertising vehicle, 
um, to build their business. We've seen a couple of CPG brands just launch on Alibaba. Right. You know, um, big ones, which, you know, wouldn't have happened uh, yeah. five years ago. You mentioned Tencent and Alibaba kind, kind of goes back to that, that question about Chinese brands going, going global. How have you seen that um, progress on that score? Yeah, it's been it's been a bit of um, uh, slim pickings to some extent. I think you're starting yeah. to see more like the Vivos and the Oppos now. Yep. They're, they're taking market share away in India. Mm-hmm. Huawei is now ahead of Apple globally. Yep. I don't think anyone would know that mm-hmm. uh, in mobile phones. But, you know, I mean, Alibaba and Tencent are both top 10 global companies now. Mm-hmm. They're both worth about $450 billion. And that was, you know, that's impossible to have predicted four or five years ago. So I think... Chinese brands are going global. They're just doing it under a more Chinese style than necessarily uh, yeah. than a Western company might do it. Has it been slower than you expected? I think a little bit. I think they've just had too many opportunities locally. Yeah. Um, you know, you look at people like Yili and Mengnyo, mm-hmm. you know, they've created a milk category in China. It's worth billions and billions of dollars, and they're still growing in China. Right. So, you know, theoretically they could have gone global, but there's just so much opportunity for them in the China market. Yeah. Um, the the thing that has always struck me about um, Chinese companies trying to go global is they have quite different marketing operations, the way they're structured, compared to your classic Western marketing model. How, how big of a challenge do you feel that has been? Yeah, I think for someone like Huawei, um, you know, we've worked with them in the past. They're, they're still a very top-down structure. Mm. Decisions still get made out of Shenzhen. So it's been tough for them to bring in the marketing talent that a Samsung has attracted or an Apple has attracted. Yeah. So, um, you know, they, they've been successful, but I wonder how much more successful they could be if they started to decentralize a little bit more. Yeah. Interesting. And just staying on China, because I think it's, mm. it's such a fascinating topic. How do you see the plight of um, Western brands in China? Because there's been a certain amount of angst uh, about the way they've been um, yeah, growing. They, and, and They are all getting crunched in mm. China. Uh, the agencies and the brands are getting crunched. Um, and they're getting killed by the long tail. So they're actually getting killed by, you know, not by any sort of one or two local brands, but just through constant innovation Mm-hmm. Or, or borrowing innovation um, across multiple markets. Yeah. So, you know, Nestle has 1,500 competitors in the milk powder category. Yeah. It changes by province, it's, you know, and it's tough. It's tough to compete with that. Agencies too? I mean, there's been a, a proliferation, right, in domestic agencies in China. The biggest, of course, we see yeah. blue, fo- blue Focus, but there's there's many, many more. Yeah, there's 45,000 agencies in China. <laughs> when you invite them all to a pitch, it's going to be very competitive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are all owner-operated and they've got a lot of flexibility or they're subsidized by the government or or, or someone else. So um, they're very flexible in their pricing and speed and turnaround and, and they're catching up. Yeah. How yeah. do you compare? I mean, I assume you've met with, with many of them. How do you How do you compare them with, you know, the classic Ogilvy's and JWT's and so on? Well, I think, first of all, you've got to realize where you are. So at the end of the day, if you're a marketer that needs to promote your brand in China, you're going to want someone very close to that market. Uh, mm-hmm. No point just giving it to a Western company, a Western agency that happens to be based there. Mm-hmm. Whoever you hire, they need to really understand the Chinese consumer well. And a lot of local companies are uh, set up to have a natural head start on that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, people like Blue Focus have done an amazing job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, j- just the same as groups like the Leo Group now, which is a digital agency network. They've managed to buy four or five different assets and put that together into a local holding company. So, um, yeah, it's pretty diverse, actually. And what next for Blue Focus, I wonder? 
they've been uh, yeah they've been looking to acquire more they acquired a lot overseas yep. then, it, then it kind of stopped for a while um you do you expect that to restart they they did a deal recently if i'm not mistaken yeah they did an interesting deal in the us to um <clears throat> to expand their capabilities there. I mean, I think they're, they're definitely on the way, on the lookout. Mm-hmm. What they've also done quite well is decentralized. So they've given mm-hmm. the Canada operations flexibility mm-hmm. to start looking at their own assets. We Are Social is also looking at their own assets. Um, so I personally think they've got um, more growth potential than almost any other agency network. Really? I think they've got the, the, the capacity for it. They've got the ability to get access to capital to do that. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised to make them see them make a big move in the US or UK. Yeah, very interesting soon. to hear. So what, yeah, what they've done is they've merged their international operations with a data performance Correct. marketing group. Yeah. Which again, I think is it's unconventional. You know, if it yeah. was. Yeah, uh, they're very open to doing different things, and right. I think that's also makes them well in a in a competitive race against the holding group because. Most of the holding groups have got a very set structure for M&A. Yeah. Um, they're a lot more flexible and they've got a lot more assets. And I think, you know, we always do this uh, upside down, right side up spider, which is hard to show on a podcast. But, <laughs> you know, I think most holding groups are top down. So they really want to manage the agencies within them. Yeah. Blue Focus sees themselves as kind of bottom up. They're right. underneath the, whole, the, the agencies to huh. support them. Uh, and that's kind of Oscar's mindset. So I think he's got a very different approach to M&A and I think that's very refreshing for a owner operator when he, when they come in and talk to him. Yeah, it's interesting and on M&A um you you do a report every year I think where you track all of the agency every month Arun. Sorry, every, every month. month. I, I read it. I, I I like to get <laughs> I like to get the long view. Sure, sure. Every year. <laughs> yeah. Um what are the 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 key I guess shifts you've seen in recent years the rise of private equity perhaps? Yeah, private equity, um, you know, this month uh, is the first time in history that the consultants are leading the way. Accenture's oh, on top. Okay. Uh, it's done less acquisitions than WPP or Dentsu, but more in terms of volume, more uh, volume value, yeah. right? So, value, yep. um, so it's leading the way. Um, I think you've seen a lot of asynchronous buyers. So you're mm-hmm. seeing people like Salesforce in the list Ooh, um, okay. are investing yep. more and more in this area. Adobe is still investing mm. in the agency sector. Um, we even saw Domino's Pizza buying a, an agency um, yep. to bring to bring that in. So I think you've seen, you know, New York Times. You've seen a lot of unusual uh, acquirers, actually, including mm. private equity. Um, very little action from people like Omnicom or IPG that have been a little slower, even Publicis Group. Yeah, I mean, certainly on the PR side, um, you don't see as many unconventional buyers, but you do you do see a lot of private equity. Yeah, um, and yeah. that that has been a huge. A huge change, I think, yeah. compared to three or four years ago. Yeah, I think private equity see, um, you know, they see the lower margins and they say to themselves, well, if we can get this from a 10% margin to a 15 or a 16, we're going to do some some good business. It's easy to say and hard to do, but they've mm-hmm. been successful in some cases. Any trends in terms of geographic markets or specific capabilities that... We're seeing a lot less in China this year. Yeah. Uh, it's just it's slowed down quite a lot. I think a lot of um, local assets are, are going IPO. Um, there's a new Shanghai stock market right. set up, and I think there's at least 20 or 30 agencies have listed on that wow. um, in the last two years. Okay. Didn't exist two years ago. Um, so a lot, of, a lot of them are looking for sort of their own self-directed routes. Um, and you know, holding groups are having trouble finding the great assets that the, you know, the bilingual English speaking 
assets that they need to to grow from. Yeah. Um, so China China's definitely slowed down. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Are, are there any particular geographic markets where you're seeing it's more active in terms of acquisition? Uh, I think the U.S. has still been very yeah. active. Um, it's yeah. really it's not slowed down at all. Uh, there's a lot of provincial um, and and assets by different states and so on. So it's still still growing pretty well. Mm, okay. So we've taken about 25 minutes. It's time to talk about PR. Let's do. Oh my <laughs> God! I'm so sorry. Let's do it. <laughs> we've got okay. to do it. So you, um, of course. Uh, as part of your work, you you come into contact a lot now. I think with public relations sure agencies. Yeah. Um, so where should we start? Uh, what to rank them in order? Or, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That would be great. They're all yeah. great. In They're reverse great. order, we start okay. start with a hundred. Start with a Z. <laughs> so, okay. Um, what are the the main changes you've seen uh, in the way that public relations agencies are trying to position themselves? Yeah, honestly, I think public relations agencies have the same challenge that legacy ad agencies have. It's moving from a 20th century model to a 21st century model. Some are doing Mm -hmm. it better than others. Um, But, you know, you've really got to say to a public relations agency, if social is not at your core, Mm. uh, how successful are you going to be in the 21st century? And so some have moved very quickly into that space. People like Edelman are now working uh, with Samsung on their social work. Um, You know, I think when when you've got that capability at a base – Great things can come from it. If you don't have that at the base, then you're just a pure 20th century style media relations agency. It's going to be tough for you to really grow quickly. Yeah, I must say I find it baffling that, you know, 10 years in, is this is still an observation that public relations agencies have not been able to integrate social media. And I don't just hear it from you. I hear it. Sure. I hear it everywhere. Well, socials move very quickly. It's really a seven or eight year phenomenon. So I think yeah. that's been one of the challenges with it. It's caught a lot of people off guard. Not everybody's as young as you. Some of us are older and uh, we're not as adept on social media as, uh, as, uh, as we should be. As people, you know, people over 40 will struggle to make that business case. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's caught a lot of agencies off guard, frankly. I mean, it's that fundamental challenge, isn't it, of, of going from one way of making money to another. And it, it catches many businesses out. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I, I, th- I still think there's a huge role for building reputation and mm-hmm. uh, public relations are at the forefront of doing that. Um, but, but some are doing it better than others. So the, and you're probably aware of this, but the kind of promised land for PR agencies is that they will break out of the communications budget silo, which is, as, as someone said to me the other day, around 1-14th of the marketing budget. Uh, and they will start to access uh, CMO budgets directly. And uh, in this land of, of, of milk and honey, they'll also uh, be leading uh, client campaigns rather than uh, maybe coming in towards the end um, of the execution chain. How realistic are those aspirations from what you see? Look, I think uh, there's always space for great ideas. Um, right. At the end of the day, uh, you know, and, and, and I don't want to be the one to talk about death of agencies because marketers are going to need great content to communicate with people. Mm-hmm. You've got 250 million people are blocking their ads and even more because the Chinese phones have that built into their software now. So, you know, people have said, I don't want to see your messaging. Mm -hmm. Uh, That puts an even greater demand on great ideas to cut through. So, um, you know, if PR agencies can continue to to deliver breakthrough ideas, they'll have a seat at the top of the table. If not, it's unlikely. But um, 
I actually think there's other streams of revenue for them. I think in the whole area of lobbying, government relations. Well, that worked out well for Bell Pottinger, I think. That's true. Some doing better than others on that. But I still think that that can be a, a, a greater global role for them. I wouldn't uh, want everyone to end up like Paul Manafort, but I'm sure there'll still be uh, benefits uh, for them there. I mean, because it, it's managing reputation with CEOs. Of right, and it, that's what they can do uniquely well, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I think the problem, they, as they see it, is those revenues are not growing in the way that well, they again, a lot grow. of that's coming in-house as well. But people yeah. are still going to want to benchmark, still going to want to improve. You know, I think if, if, you're, if you're stuck in the world of media relations, mm. it's going to be difficult for you to grow your business at a, an exponential rate. Mm. Um, you're going to have to find some new areas to do that. And I think the whole issue of lobbying will go far beyond just governments. It will come to people like lobbying Amazon mm-hmm. or lobbying, lobbying Facebook or lobbying Google. How do we build direct relation? How do we manage our relationship with those people? And... Uh, PR agencies could be in a good position to do that. And what do you think of um, public relations agencies? You know, Edelman's the most notable example. Um, hiring in, you know, well, in Edelman's case, something like 600 creatives and planners, many making big hires from, from ad land, uh, some of which don't always work out. I mean, how do you see that phenomenon? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big risk and a big move from them. I think it's very bold. I think you've probably seen them do it more than the ones that are inside the holding groups because mm-hmm. I think the yeah. holding groups are like, well, I already have Ogilvy or JWT or whatever. Well, why do I need to, to, to change the model so significantly? Mm. So I think they're in a unique position where they've had to do that. I think you've also seen that with Next15 and some of the smaller guys as well try to become more digitally centric and change the profile. But, you know, most PR agencies are trying to look at how they can bring digital transformation to their own business, mm. uh, either through M&A or uh, through just, you know, through... Uh, changing the structure of the way they're working. Mm. Now, you do um, a research study that you very kindly send to us every year uh, where you um, poll, I think, clients in China in terms of what they're looking yeah. for from PR agencies. Correct. Yep. Um, are there any specific findings from that that you think are, have, have emerged kind of at the forefront in terms of what clients want from public relations agencies? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great challenge. I mean, also, interestingly poll uh, procurement people on the same oh, study and okay. what they want is somewhat different to uh, to what marketers I, want and I, I can there's, imagine <laughs> there's also that huge dilemma internally not just in China but around the world of of you know a CMO versus a procurement leader mm-hmm. uh, in terms of hiring an agency e- even their own marketing people are frustrated sometimes with procurement and agencies yeah. of course are far more frustrated with procurement um, so that's a challenge but I think you know, marketers at the end of the day, they, they go to an agency because they don't have the expertise internally. They want external benchmarks and best practice. Mm-hmm. So I think the best agencies we've seen are the ones that build up really strong case studies of how did they play a role in solving this particular problem mm-hmm. and showcase that on a continual basis. Mm. Um, so you know, creds. But good creds. I mean, I think, mm. you know, breakthrough creds that are, that are interesting. I mean, I think, unfortunately, I hate to say this, agencies are fantastic at marketing other people's brands, not so good at marketing their own sometimes. Yeah. Um, and they need to take a closer look at what tools, we already know the tools that we bring to our clients' business. Yeah. How do we bring that to our business to actually make us a better proposition? Yeah. Do you think there are areas that agencies spend too much time on that clients are like and maybe not that interested in? Awards, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, apart from the Sabres, of course, of which course. are a tremendous investment. Of course. Um, yeah, I think awards, unfortunately, they're a necessary evil um, mm. because it just attracts talent to the agency. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I have the solution to Khan and to Sabres and to all award shows. Well, I'm which sure is, you, you can share that. 
which I have to, you have to pay me for, I can't just give it to you. But anyway, no, the solution is very simple. Get the client on stage mm. to win the award at Cannes yeah. or wherever with the agency. Mm-hmm. When someone wins a Best Picture Oscar, the producer gets up on stage. Yeah. He didn't get involved. The, in the producer treat. is not going to be on stage anymore, though. In, in, with, oh, is that in, true? In, well, in one certain case, you know. There you go. No comment. <laughs> one producer won't be. But, you know, he's not doing anything creative. He's just the guy that funded it. So yeah, right. get the client on stage with the agency together for all awards, you know, um, and make them feel because in the end it is a collaborative process. You, you can't create this work in total isolation. Otherwise, it's called scam. Yes, and that's um, that's an area that uh, that I remember uh, covering in in quite a lot of detail here. Guys, uh, nothing's changed. Oh, really? Still happening. Oh, okay. Um, that is interesting. What what do you make of all of the the kind of hand wringing about Can? You know, we had obviously publishers pulling out um, so that they could launch Marcel, their AI tool, um, and then Martin Sorrell. Uh, making his feelings very clear. In fact, I was at the the session where he decided to start taking very public uh, shots at Cannes for the location, for price gouging, for a whole variety of of things. What do you see at play here? Yeah, it's a it's a little bit of a power play. I think in the end, um, agencies have tough budget decisions to make too. Cannes uh, mm. takes a huge chunk of their budget. It's probably you know twenty percent of their profit. In some cases, wow. um, if you if you take a look at what it would cost for for sending people to Cannes, for doing the awards, yeah. for the whole submission, the creative the creative time invested to mm-hmm. develop ads that you know uh, can be entered. Um, so I think we, if you add it all up, um, it's probably only one or two percent of revenue, but that you know that can be twenty percent of profit at the end of the day. So you have to say to yourself, where is that money better spent, and should I spend that more wisely on? technology yeah. or clients or whatever. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be very interesting to see what uh, WPP do at Cannes this year. And it'll be interesting to see what Cannes does as well to respond. I yeah, mean, I, absolutely. I, I think we will sure. probably see that soon. Um, okay, so just a couple of things before you go because um, you're a busy man. Uh, first of all, thoughts on the Ogilvy restructuring because that's <laughs> a story that has that we have found pretty interesting. Um not entirely sure where we are on spectrum in terms of their kind of I don't know how you call it their their reintegrating I suppose after uh, being balkanized for many years yeah uh, to use that lovely phrase um, what do you think is the, is the thinking there and how successful do you think it'll be yeah I mean they've 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 had some very strong brands uh, independently right Ogle- Ogilvy mm-hmm. PR has strong uh, in China and a number of the yeah. markets. Uh, Ogilvy One has been a successful uh, direct and CRM brand for a long time. So it's a big risk from them to do that. I think the challenge with them is going to be bringing in people from Ogilvy One or Ogilvy PR or Ogilvy Action into a senior management role. Mm. Otherwise, they may risk losing some of that talent because they've got some great people that were, you know, formerly managing directors who now who may now not be. Are domain uh, leaders. Or so, you know, you, you're going to have some some challenges there. But I think cl- clients are open to that. There's a, there's a percentage of clients that want that solution. There's a right. percentage of clients that don't. So yeah. if you can find the right clients like an IBM or some of the clients they already have, they love to have that solution where they've got a single point of contact and they can get access to all this great resource. Other clients would rather break that off into separate agencies. And people often ask me, which way is the pendulum swinging? Do clients want um, that one kind of cohesive solution from a holding group, 
or do they want the best in breed? Is there an answer to that question? Yeah, it's swinging around all the time, yeah. to be honest with you. Uh, you know, we have a thing called six degrees of integration. It's like six degrees of separation. Mm. And we look at the six different models. And, uh, you know, the one that's growing right now is this one called Free Agent. You know, S Sony's got nine agencies of record. Mm -hmm. uh, they brief them all at the same time. May the best man win. Okay. Um, or woman. Or woman. Course. Thank you. Of course. That's not yeah. for everybody, but that's their approach. And it's it's working for them mm -hmm. sometimes. It's, uh yeah. You know, um, what you lose in that is that strategic relationship and, uh, you know, the senior management involvement. So, you know, it's it's really you've got to look at what your business needs are and yeah. what's the right approach. So that, Yeah, so there's no one single answer. Yeah. Uh, and finally, your thoughts on um, our friends over at Publicis Group, uh, not just in terms of their decision to cut all their award spending uh, in favor of an artificial intelligence virtual assistant, um, but also, uh, I guess, because of the restructuring we've seen there, the succession from Maurice Lévy to Arthur Sadoun, um, the kind of collapsing of all of their agencies and publicist communications, it's a lot of change. Yeah, they've gone through a lot of change. They still have some incredible assets inside that holding group. I think they just have to work out what's the best way to leverage those assets in an effective way for the right clients. So, you know, we've been working with them quite closely on a number of clients, mm -hmm. um, and they've done a pretty good job of... Clients like Samsung, which is probably their largest client now in their portfolio, um, of shifting the way that they're working and bringing in fresh digital talent. Mm. Um, you know, I think that the, the, the challenge is now to do that over the next top 10 clients. So it's, uh, it's um, yeah, I think the jury's still out of what's going to happen. Mm. Um, Artur's got a lot of energy and, yep. <laughs> uh, and drive. So I think that's a positive thing. And he's a, he's a practitioner as well, which is good. Mm. So I think... Um, yeah, it's going to be a it's going to be an interesting road for them in the next five months, five okay. five years. Sorry. Great. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time. This was um, really interesting, and it was a bit of a whirlwind. Um, but hopefully, we Absolute can get pleasure. you back. We hopefully we can get you back on here, either um, on your next visit to Hong Kong, or maybe uh, maybe in New York, or wherever you are. Happy to help. Somewhere in the world. Thank yeah. you all for listening to the Echo Chamber. Um, it's been a pleasure, as always. We'll be back again next week. You can find us on iTunes. Please review us. Uh, you can find us on various other podcast platforms. Uh, and, of course, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and via email, even. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. Sponsored by March Communications, connecting innovation and people.